You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. I loved this book by Annie Murphy-Paul. She's a magazine journalist and a book author who writes about the biological and social sciences. Her new book is called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. And this has really changed the way I think about thinking, and I highly recommend it to uh, anyone. It's a great book. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S.A.M.D. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Annie Murphy Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, my, my wife read The Extended Mind and couldn't stop talking about it. And mm. indeed, having read the book, I find myself with this all these whole new ways of considering my thinking and feeling state. And to this point, uh, I sleepwalk on occasion. Uh, and the other night I was sleepwalking and I tripped and I banged into my dresser. Oh, And so, so now you have to look at my black eye on the zoom. <laughs> Thank God my listeners don't. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm actually wondering now what my body was telling me as opposed <laughs> to trying to figure out all this stuff in my mind. And, and that, that is a new way to consider. And of course, we'll be coming up at therapy in just a few hours. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I've never been asked a question like that because although my book does talk about how we think with the body and not just with the brain, um, I've never thought about the body thinking during sleep, but it does speak to your experience does speak to the fact that we're, we evolved to move We're we're, um, we're born to move. And actually, usually when we're asleep, there's a, an inhibition that, that happens that, um, that keeps us from getting up out of our beds and walking around and um, in people who sleepwalk, that's, that fails for some reason. Um, but as to the larger meaning of that, I mean, um, were you having any dreams while you were sleepwalking? Probably. I don't remember my dreams. I, mm. I like, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it, what, what I found so interesting about it, and this is just generally speaking after reading the book, mm-hmm. is, and you, you sort of say this for yourself as this research, you, you, you begin to see the evidence coming in and then recognizing like what, what, I, what I love about the, the, the book is, is the bad metaphors. You start with mm-hmm. these terrible metaphors that have us thinking about thinking incorrectly. So maybe that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, So one of the most 
common and pervasive metaphors for the brain is that the brain is like a computer. Mm -hmm. And there's some ways in which this is uh, accurate. I mean, the brain processes information, but it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it in the same way that a a computer does. And so that really leads us down some um, unfortunate paths when we assume that, for example, um, the body has nothing to contribute to intelligent thought because everything's going on above the neck, you know, in this mm-hmm. information processor that we have in, inside our heads. Or it leads us astray when we assume that where we are doesn't affect how we think. Because that that's true for a computer. You know, my laptop here works the same, whether it's here in my home office, or, you know, if I were to take it to a park and it were it was operating outside, it would work just the same way. But human brains are very different. They're context sensitive such that they're really um, affected by, by where they are and what kind of state they're in. And then finally, you know, um, computers don't have friends. As far as we know, they don't have colleagues or classmates. And, and uh, so they're not, they're not affected by uh, the minds of other people, the way we are so profoundly affected by our social relationships. So to think of, um, a brain like a computer is really to cut off um, many of the wellsprings of human intelligence and to really misunderstand and undervalue what our kind of intelligence, the human kind of intelligence is all about. And then the other metaphor, uh, which uh, <clears throat> is the brain as a muscle, um, which is something, I, I mean, I've used that muscle term probably incorrectly for, for other things when I'm talking about improvisation and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and, and of course I've, I've, I've loved in the past Carol Dweck's work around growth mm-hmm. mindset, but this is a mm-hmm. troubling metaphor and tell us why. Yeah. And you know, there again, there's a kernel of truth to it and a kernel of value. Cause I too really like Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset. And it's a, a positive and encouraging message to say to students, for example, that, when you exercise your brain, you're making it stronger and you can, you can get smarter that way. But it is limited in the sense that, uh, okay, once, you've, once you're exercising your brain at its, at its max, you know, um, where do you go from there? And mm-hmm. um, it, it, it assumes that all the things we do to get smarter have to happen inside our head when really the best way, in my view, the most efficient and effective way to think more intelligently is to become a skilled user of things that are outside the brain, you know, the body and physical spaces and relationships with other people, uh, bringing those into the thinking process rather than relying on the brain alone. Yeah. I mean, the amount of info, there was a second city scene that, that talked about this uh, way back where it was a husband uh, and wife talking about the amount of information that they store in each other's brains, including which cousin is a jerk, you know, how much can I drink at night, that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the the reason it always got the laugh it did was because people are recognizing the sort of essential mm-hmm. truth about that, but that we don't talk about that way normally. Mm-hmm. That we don't talk about. We don't we don't talk about that that, that we're actually doing that. That's why I was a surprise to people in the, in, in the audience because we all do that to a certain extent in our relationships. I think. Uh huh. Uh huh. We build this thing that psychologists call a transactive memory system, where um, we rely on other people to carry parts of our memories around with them. Yeah, and that's why 
you know, the end of a relationship can feel so devastating because you're not just losing all that emotional support, but you're also in a sense losing part of your, your mind and your memory. And uh, it can be very disorienting for that reason. You introduce us to a term uh, interoception, if I'm mm-hmm. saying that correctly. Tell us what that is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a like technical wonky kind of term for what the rest of us know as uh, gut feelings, you know, this, mm-hmm. um, this flow of internal sensation that's really with us all the time, you know, we, we can sense, many of us can sense our heartbeat, hearts beating, or we feel um, butterflies in our stomach, uh, we, we might feel our heart racing if we're really um, worked up about something. And um, it turns out that those physical internal cues are carrying information, you know, they're there, that's our body responding to the situation that we're encountering and um, giving us messages about how to handle it. But if we're not in touch with those internal sensations, and there's a lot of pressures uh, in our culture to kind of push those um, internal signals and cues aside and sort of power through, you know, and focus just on your on your thinking and on your your mental operations. Um, but it, when we do that, we lose touch with, we lose access to this um, really rich repository of information and experience that is stored in the body. So you have a story and a character that you talk uh, to us to sort of illustrate that. And that's John Coates, who was a Merrill Lynch trader. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he studied traders on the London floor. I was fascinating, I thought. Yeah, yeah, this was a cool study. So he um, gave these... Um, gave a group of, of London financial, of trader, financial traders in London, he gave a group of them uh, the heartbeat detection test, which is a kind of standard test for, uh, it uses the, the, our awareness of our heartbeat as a proxy for how, how in tune are you with, the, with your internal sensations. And it's, uh, people are at, who take the test are asked to guess when their own heart is beating and, and people are more and less accurate in their judgments. Um, and he also gave the heartbeat detection test to a group of uh, control group, like a group of people off the street. And it turns out that these uh, financial, that the financial traders were much more uh, attuned to their heartbeats. They were much more attuned to their interoceptive sensations. And moreover, that the more successful uh, traders, the ones who had been making more money, were were the most uh, attuned to their to their heartbeat and to their internal sensations. And what's so interesting to me about this study is that we think of, at least I think of finance as being kind of like, you know, all about sort of big brain, you know, number crunching, mm-hmm. very, a very kind of cerebral kind of um, undertaking. But it turned out that the people who were best at this activity were those who were tuned into their bodies. And, you know, that goes against this whole cultural bias we have, wherein we believe that the body is um, kind of irrational and unruly and ungovernable, you know, and it's, it's the brain and the mind that are really uh, calling the shots. But in fact, um, it's those traders who were most in tune with their bodies who were able to make the smartest decisions. Yeah, we, we spoke to Lauren Nordgren from Northwestern recently about his new book. And there's a story in there about the best car salesman in Michigan, who's mm-hmm. this guy who's just in tune with human beings. He, if, if they sense that yeah. they can get a better deal somewhere else, he sends them there. And it's just yeah. a, it's so anti-sales in terms of especially like anyone who's bought a car, right? It's like, yeah. it, is, it is the most upsetting experience. It's never good. You're always getting mm-hmm. screwed. It's just terrible. 
Yeah, so interesting. And in fact, interoception can play a role in our relationships with other people and not just with our own selves. Um, you know, some of the most interesting research that I came across had to do with social interoception and the fact that, you know, we don't have direct access to what another person is thinking. Their brain is kind of a black box um, from our perspective, but the way we're able to sense what other people are feeling is by, you know, when we're engaged in some with someone face-to-face talking, we very subtly and automatically and unconsciously mimic their facial expressions mm-hmm. and their gestures and their posture. And then we read off our own bodies, what that makes us feel like, you know, and therapists actually are um, the champions of this, you know, they're yes, trained they to use their own bodies as a tool for understanding what they're what their patients are are feeling and may not even the patients themselves may not even really be aware of it. For sure. Um, the section on thinking with movement was particularly interesting to me. And I don't know if you know the origin story of like the improv games that became Second hmm. City, but they were created by a social worker in the 1920s and 30s at Jane Addams Hull House in the south side of Chicago. Oh, I didn't know that. How interesting. So she created these games to better assimilate the immigrant children coming into their her care Many mm. of them were in gibberish uh, and were very movement-based because the kids didn't always share language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then her son, Paul Sills, teaches it to Nichols and May and other people, and it mm. becomes the second city. But it's still, mm. I think, the sort of transformative power of the exercises and why so many people take classes in improv, not to get on Saturday Night Live, but because they, they find it's a, a bit of therapeutic, is for some of the reasons you talk about here with regard to, mm. oh, it enhances your ability to think when you move. So I'd love mm-hmm. you to talk, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the things that you talk about in the book around that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just note that, you know, when you when an author writes a book, you you, you don't know until it's published, who, who's going to respond to it, who it's who's going to find it of interest. And one of the most gratifying things about publishing The Extended Mind was finding that lots of people in the arts really yeah, got yeah. this book. Um, and I think that's because artists of all stripes have always thought with their bodies and with physical space mm-hmm. and with collaborations with other people. So it was kind of like, they were primed for this, you know, for yeah, this. You probably, you probably weren't writing it for the artist community. I, don't think. I wasn't, I wasn't. Although when I think about it, the, um, the, uh, the, the book does include a number of stories about yeah. artists like Jackson Pollock and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the movement piece is interesting because um, there's so many ways in which uh, movement um uh, informs our thinking and can advance our thinking. You know, one that's particularly relevant to improv is um, is gesture, of course. And yes, um, yeah. and you know, it's it's scientists have found that people speak and think less um, less fluently, less effectively when they're prevented from gesturing. Gest- mm-hmm. Gesturing is not just kind of a hand waving, you know, like add on to speech. It's actually an integral part of the thinking process. And what's interesting is that um, people like teachers who want to help others understand and learn, it's actually a good idea for for teachers and and instructors of other kinds to get people gesturing because that helps them with their thinking process. And one way to get people gesturing is to put them in a situation where they are improvising, where they are describing or explaining they're on the spot. They're not prepared, you know, that they're, they kind of, they're being called upon to do it on the spot in front of other people. And because that's a really intellectually, mentally taxing kind of activity, uh, 
automatically people gesture more because um, they're offloading some of that mental burden onto their hands. And then in turn, because they're gesturing so much, that gesture feeds back into their thinking processes and actually helps them to learn and to understand better. Yeah. One of my lines I use about improv is that it's human being practice. So as all these sort of exercises that allow you to just, just focus on uh, the, the thing, whether it's listening or collaborating or, or you know, uh, making it up. Um, and the other thing that in, in this, the gesturing thing, of course, but then also the idea we know when, because we write our shows um, through improvisation and it, it's only scripted by like the end. Uh, but often the actors are, they know their lines uh, when things are blocked. So the minute you're setting up where you're going to be, that becomes much easier. And you, you talk about that as being a thing for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, a very interesting research pair uh, at Elmhurst University. It, it, it's uh, made up of a, a team of, of husband and wife. And the wife is a psychologist, Helga Noyce, and her husband, Tony, is an actor. And together they study uh, the psychology of memory in actors and they find, you know, not, I guess this is, this isn't surprising, but they find that actors have unbelievable memory for lines, you know, even many months after they've um, performed in a play, they can recall their dialogue with upwards of 90% accuracy. And what the noises have found that is so interesting is that first of all, in their interviews with actors, They hear over and over again, actors saying, well, I never try to learn my lines until the play has been blocked, until I know Mm. how and where I'm going to be moving with my body, because the, the, the lines actually kind of get attached to those movements. And it doesn't, it, it wouldn't make any sense for me to learn the lines without knowing what the the corresponding actions are. And then they've also found in their studies that um, uh, it's those lines that were, delivered along with a movement that get remembered the best. Um, those mm. are the, the things that really stick in people's memories, actors and non-actors, that when people are moving in a way that corresponds in a, in a meaningful way to what they're saying, they remember those words much better than if they were standing still or sitting still while they were speaking those lines. So there's something about tying um, words to actions in a meaningful way that really cements it in our memory. Uh, the next thing you talk about is, is thinking in nature and natural spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting because I, I, you know, for myself, I know I've thought about my time in nature as a feeling, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and not as helping my thinking. Um, right. Right. We, we did have uh, uh, Decker Keltner on the podcast who you talk about his research in awe. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, t- tell us the different ways that uh, we can be like more productive because we're thinking in nature, for example. <laughs> well, I, I hate to put it that way, you know, because uh, I do think being in nature is a good thing in itself. And right. you're right to to notice um, that your mood is elevated in yeah. it when you're in nature. But there's a really interesting reason for that. Um, um, there's probably several reasons for that. But one of them is that, you know, human beings evolved in the in the outdoors. You know, this life we live where we're almost always inside or in, in buildings or in cars is a very recent um, development and uh, in, in evolutionary time scales. And so the kind of information, the kind of stimuli that's available in outdoor settings, it's very easy for our brains to process. It's effortless for us to take in, you know, the sight of a tree or, or rolling waves or, you know, um, 
a sort of verdant scene is much easier for our brains to process than an urban scene with lots of, you know, sharp edges and fast moving objects. So it's very, it's very easy and effortless for us to process that information and the brain, the things that it finds easy and effortless to process, it tends to attach a a positive valence to, it tends to, um, it makes us feel good to, to be able to, um, to have our brains operating in that low key way instead of being so drained and, um, and drawn upon. Um, and so that means that when you spend time in nature, you're effectively kind of refilling the tank of your attention. You know, we think so much about how we direct our attention and how we spend it or how it's being distracted, you know, but we don't really think about the supply side, like where is, where are those attentional resources being replenished and regenerated? And it turns out that spending time in nature is the fastest and easiest and most effective way to kind of restore our attentional capacities. So then we can go back to our, our offices and our desks and be productive. And you talk in the book too, about the, you know, when we're working on small screens and I'm, I'm just looking around me, right. I've got my iPhone, I've got my iPad mini, I've got mm-hmm. my computer and then I've got my monitor. So increasingly larger screens, uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. you know, a dance doing between these. And a few weeks ago, I, I met up with some college buddies in Denver and we went hiking in the mountains and it was like unbelievable. And, and, mm-hmm. and the thing that struck me, and you talk about this in the book, is mm-hmm. how, how small our, our, our thinking might be inside yes. the iPhone and the vastness of what yes. I was thinking about and talking about for that weekend because we were mostly outdoors and looking at these beautiful mountains and vistas. It, it's just the world seemed available, whereas yeah. often the world feels not. Right, right. Yeah, I think you can think of it as like small screens breed small thoughts, you know, nice, and, yeah. uh, you know, this people who study scientists who study the effects of nature, will talk about the three day effect, meaning that, you know, we do get this boost in attention and focus when we go outside, even just for a 10 minute walk. But when people st- spend extended amounts of time in nature, and especially when they leave their devices behind, they get this really this um, much bigger boost in creativity and ability to think in fresh and new ways. And some of that might be um, also what you talked about with 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 Josh, Dr. Keltner about awe that um, you know we're most likely to encounter a really awesome, majestic kind of um, overwhelming experience in in nature. You're not gonna. You're probably not gonna have one on your on, when you're on your iPhone, right? No. Um, and he and um, his co-authors talk about awe as a reset button for the human brain. Like it really kind of shakes up our settle, settled and and um, baked in mental schemas, so that we we really can open up our minds and think in new ways. All right. So the the just polar opposite of that, and we have talked a lot about this in the podcast. So I love that you go there, which is open offices. So working in built spaces. Yeah. <laughs> the scourge that is the open office. There's science yeah. behind this. Tell us why it's bad. There, yes. And maybe it won't come back, you know, after we've all been home and we're thinking about I going hope. back into the office, maybe, maybe this will finally kill off the, the open office once and for all. But the problem with the open office is that, you know, and to go back to, to evolution again, and what the brain, our brains evolved to do, they evolved, they really evolved to be distracted in the sense that any kind of novelty or 
movement or change in our surroundings could represent a threat or it could represent Mm -hmm. an opportunity. And either way, you wanted to be paying attention to that and aware of that. So we literally can't uh, prevent ourselves from being uh, having our, our attention pulled to whatever's going on around us. And we're especially susceptible, human beings are especially susceptible to um, stimuli that are social that have to do with other people. We can't help but process mentally the, the meaning of the words that we hear around us. So whether we want to be tuning into our our cubicle mates, you know, inane conversation or not, we, we process uh, the semantic meaning of, of, of his words. Um, and that, that uses that mental bandwidth that we want to be applying to our work. So my view is that if we want to do demanding complex cognitive work, which a lot of our jobs call upon us to do, we need help. We need external help. We need walls, you know, to, mm-hmm. um, to shield us from our own propensity for distraction. And, and that's exactly what the open office, you know, um, got rid of um, with the idea that that would promote collaboration and, and serendipitous kind of collisions and um, conversations among people. But the problem is that, uh, and, and interestingly, research finds that those kinds of spontaneous conversations actually decline when people move from private offices to an open office setting because nobody wants to talk in uh, first of all they they don't they don't have the privacy to have a, a discussion and not without you know hundreds of ears listening and also when people retreat into themselves when they want to get work done so they put up walls of a kind you know with their with their earbuds or um they shut they shut other people out as a as a matter of survival so actually conversation and sociability goes down among um, employees who are in an open office. So it actually kind of works against the very phenomenon that it was invented to, to promote. Yeah. I don't think it's a surprise for the, the few of us that uh, or the, I'll say the handful of us who have come back to work at second city are all the people who have offices. So when you, oh, go, over, right, when you right. go to the open office, there might be one or two people there, but that's uh-huh. never more than that. Interesting, um, right? Yeah, right. And so, so it's obvious in the in the thinking with the space of ideas uh, uh, chapter. Yeah. I thought of um, when we're creating a second city show, uh, and the actors are writing the material, but the director is, is is guiding it. And what the director does is has cards, different colored cards that represent whether they're scenes or what we call black blackouts, which are short scenes, songs, improvisation, and then that goes on a wall and moves around. And it's, it's, and I've seen, you know, certainly working with my friends at IDEO, you know, they're all about the post-its. They're yeah. just like, yeah, oh, yeah, they yeah. must spend a lot of money on post-its. <laughs> post-its right, right. I'm, I'm right behind them. Yeah. I'm a big post-it fan myself, but um, yeah, that they're really onto something in the sense that, you know, we really try to do too much in our heads. We have this idea that like, if you're really smart, if you're really on top of things, you can get it all done up here, you know, but actually it's much more efficient and effective to offload the the contents of your mind onto physical space in some way, whether that's post-it notes or like a big whiteboard or a multi-monitor display. You know, we were talking about, you and I were talking about the, um, the drawbacks of a small screen when you can make screens um, into a kind of three-dimensional landscape that you're mm-hmm. actually in some way relating to with your body, all these embodied resources like spatial memory and proprioception come into play that, that don't just get wasted really when all the stuff goes on up here in your head. Um, uh, I really was struck by um what you call the cult of originality. And I, 
because I get brought in a lot to talk about innovation and creativity and, mm-hmm. you know, cause we, we build new shows all the time and that that's a thing. And so I'm, I'm very centered on that, but also I'm rooted in the past and the understanding. Mm-hmm. So, so when you get hired into the touring company at second city, which is like the triple a, you know, farm system for the resident stages, mm-hmm. you are performing best of second city shows all over the country. These are material written by Tina Fey or Stephen Colbert or Keegan, Michael Key. So it's the classics. Huh. And, and so what I thought about with this, I'm like, Oh, that's like sort of this embodied learning of what it means to do yeah. successful sketch comedy. That then yeah. when you go on a stage, you're writing your own, but, it, mm-hmm. but that's, that's mm-hmm. a form of training in and of, of yes. itself. And that makes perfect sense, actually, because, um, you know, uh, for centuries, education systems were based on this idea that the way you the way you uh, master a body of knowledge or a body of skills is that you emulate the people who've already gotten really good at it. And only then, once you've learned all that from the inside by imitation and emulation, then you can add your own twist or then you can do your create your own masterpiece. But the way you learn is by is by copying really and there there was not at one at one time there wasn't the shame or the stigma that there is attached to imitation now you know and i think that's part of um the rise of this cult of originality that i that i write about in the book that we have this idea that the only thing of value is something new something original something um first time ever you know when really um there's so much to be learned from from the past masters. And I think probably a lot of comedians honed their craft by watching and rewatching, you know, Richard Pryor. Oh, or, for uh, for right? hours, of course. And <laughs> listening is uh, my wife say, uh, uh, runs the first ever major in comedy writing and performance at Columbia college. She's a comedy professor. So she's mm. literally like playing new heart records and showing them, you know, Charlie Chaplin. And, 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 and mm-hmm. it's uh, so good for their training in terms of understanding everything that came before them. And even try, like she has a thing where, um, when she's teaching vaudeville where everyone has to do a different vaudeville act. So mm. they get to learn what, what that was. And, and then of course that gives you the grounding on which to deviate. There's another interesting aspect of this. When you talk about what um, in America's cup, uh, what some of the, uh-huh. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this was research done by a couple of business school professors actually, who looked at what happens in these um, failing races. And they found, this is very surprising to me that, Often the boat that is in the lead will begin copying all the um, maneuvers of the boat behind them, which is, you know, it's kind of like, wait, you're in the, you're in front. Like, aren't you kind of leading the way? But the point is, if you already have a lead and then you're just doing what the person behind you is doing, you're going to maintain that lead. Right. And so they, the um, business school professors were applying this to the business world and saying, you know, it's not, we think of copying as something that the second place and the also rans, you know, do to, to emulate the, the person in front. But sometimes the person, the person who's number one can benefit from, from looking at back at, you know, at the people behind them. Um, uh, we were talking before we started taping about uh, my interview with Paul Bloom. And one of the things he talks about in his book is uh, fiction and how uh, we experience the world through these stories. And often there's almost always conflict in any good story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't even have to have a happy ending. You know, it's like, like Rocky lost, uh, mm-hmm. but we still get something out of that experience. Yeah. And you talk in the book, you say, quote, when we listen to a story, our brains experience the action as if it were happening to us. Um, yes. So t- talk to us a bit about that. 
Yes. Yeah. There's a couple ways in which stories, which I'm sure you end up talking quite a lot about on this podcast, mm-hmm. stories are um, are so fundamental to the human experience. Psychologists talk about them as being psychologically privileged in the sense that our our brains are kind of, they, they evolved to understand material in the form of stories. And we tend to pay more attention to stories. We uh, understand them better. We uh, are more likely to remember the content when it's in a story. And we're more likely to act on what we hear when it's a story. And yet, when you think about how often the information we encounter is really in these kind of, in the form of these kind of dry instructions or um, manual formats, when really all of that information could be phrased as a story, you know, so often uh, students or employees will be given information in this, in this dry sort of format. And um, what, one point I make in the book is like, if we, uh, if we were to read a novel or sit down to watch a TV show, and there was there was no conflict and no tension and no kind of question of, well, what's going to happen next, you know, those things that those things that make us keep watching or keep reading, we would, we would turn off that TV show, or we would put down that book pretty quickly. And yet, we drain, you know, so much of what we encounter as students or as employees, it's completely drained of like any kind mm-hmm. of conflict or tension or, or question or, or um, suspense, you know, and so why not take advantage of this form that um, is so seems to be so integral to the way we uh, understand information? Why not you know, put everything into a story as much as possible, just um, because it, it's so congenial to the to the the human brain. So one of the things that we a business line we have at Second City is called Real Biz Shorts, and what it is is we create these short little funny vignettes to accompany ethics and compliance training. So it's like the most sure. important training, right? That you have, and <laughs> it's so boring, it's so dry. Right. And what right, breaks right. it up is Second City coming along and doing like a really funny skit about doing it the wrong way, of like getting oh, that's very bad that's run. brilliant. I mean, yeah. how much more will people remember that than like just another kind of dry as dust kind of recitation of rules? Yeah, and it's Fortune one thousand companies that are buying it because they recognize how important. And for the the newest one that we're doing, we started filming yesterday. We're doing a sort of soup to nuts sexual harassment program, oh, and it's gosh. all based in sort of story. And it's so funny because the a couple of the people who were came in that we hired from the outside were like, "This is like I've had to take this training, and it's terrible. This is fantastic right. that you're doing this. It's like a public service." Yeah, really, really. Oh gosh. Wow, that's that. Are you that's playing on the edge there, though, right? It is. I mean, it is playing on the edge, but that's where we like to be. Okay, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story. But before we do that, I, I want you to talk about um, socially distributed cognition. So this is the in the section that talks about thinking with groups, and this is what we do. We we work in groups. That's that's yeah. how how we create. It's not it's not always easy, but we talk about building ensembles. Um, mm-hmm. One of the lines that we say is that you know people often think of the adage, your group is only as good as its weakest member. And for us, it's like your group is only as good as its ability to compensate for its weakest member. Cause one of us oh. is going to be the weakest member at a certain time. Yeah. And that's a very pro-social way of, of having the group operate together. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, talk to us about socially distributed cognition. Yeah. So socially distributed cognition pushes back against the idea that thinking happens inside individual brains, you know, more and more uh, our thinking has to happen in groups because we need groups to solve the kinds of problems that we confront as a society and that we confront in our in our workplaces. 
So, um, you know, psychologists have this uh, term, there's two terms they use to describe that feeling of of a group of people kind of all being on the same page. They call it um, entitivity, like how much does a group of individuals feel like an entity, like a a cohesive group. But my preferred term, which they also use, this is actually a scientific term, is groupiness. Like Mm. how much of a sense of groupiness does this team have? And there are some uh, kind of tried and true ways of hacking the natural human inclination to want to be a part of a group, you know, actually sort of engineering that and making that happen, um, making groupiness uh, come together. And one way is interestingly synchronous movement. You know, this is why um, institutions of all kinds like churches and militaries have people do things in concert. They move as one body and there's something about, a group of people moving at the same time in the same way that kind of tricks our brain into thinking like, oh, maybe we're all kind of one, you know, maybe yeah. this is what this is what happens at a rave, you know, where people are all dancing and they they get this feeling. And there's probably some other reasons why they might they might experience that blurring of boundaries. <laughs> but um but, you know, synchronous movement. So if you can get people um, even just walking together, because when people walk together, they tend to fall into a rhythm where they're actually kind mm-hmm. of um, they're 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 in a way mirroring each other's movements. Um, but there are other things like um, having emotional experiences together, which I think I'm sure happens a lot in improvisational kind of yeah. situations where you you laugh together or you feel sad together or you have an intense experience together. And that bonds people together so that they can think more effectively together. And then things like um, having rituals together, like partaking partaking in rituals together can really bring people together, um, including just a a simple thing like sharing a meal. And one of my favorite like little tips from this book is that uh, people tend to feel closer to each other and more on the same page when they eat family style, like out of the same shared dish. And uh, going back to what we just said about having an intense experience together, if the food is really spicy, that actually like, you know, elevates our heart rate and gets our perspiration going and stuff. So spicy, spicy food served um, family style, I think, is the way to go for your next team meeting. Excellent. We'll do it. All right. We always end the podcast asking our guests Uh for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, people get nowhere by saying no. They actually (laughs) don't get that far by saying yes. We say you say Uh yes and uh, to affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a story for us? I do. So the the book I wrote before The Extended Mind was called Origins, and it's uh, about the science of prenatal influences, about how what a woman experiences when she's pregnant, how that affects um, her fetus and, and her eventual child. And when that book came out, I received an invitation to speak at Liberty University, which Ooh. is a... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I see where this uh, is going. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been invited to speak at many universities and, but never one like this, that was, you know, a biblical kind of very religiously oriented um, organization. And I, I, I debated it. And then I thought, you know what, I'll go, I'll do it. I'll see what it's like. And I won't lie. There were lots of things about it that were really odd. Like Mm -hmm. um, in my hotel room that they'd arranged for me when I arrived um, in Lynchburg, I think it's in Lynchburg, yeah. Virginia. Yeah. Um, there, my, my sort of welcoming gift was um, 
a very fancy box and I opened it and inside were um, a whole bunch of M&Ms that were printed with my initials. (laughs) To this day, day I can't explain why, but that was just the gift that I had. I had a whole bunch of of AMP um, printed M&Ms, you know? So, um, and so I I went the next day to give my um, talk at Liberty University. I will never speak. I, I feel confident saying this. I will never speak to a larger audience because they wow. have this sort of required um, convocation like several times a week, I think, and all the students are required to be there. So I was speaking to 12,000 people. <laughs> and um, and the week before, Ted Cruz, this was a number of years ago, Ted Cruz had been the speaker announcing his uh, his run for president. Um, so there I was. And, and actually, um, before I came on, uh, uh, there was a warm-up the warm-up was a Christian rock band. So I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely standing backstage thinking, what have I gotten myself into? What is, what kind of reception am I going to get here? And here I am a science writer talking about um, pregnancy and, and, you know, there's all kinds of issues that I, I know are swirling in the minds of the people who I'm going to be speaking to, but I just thought, you know what, just go out there, do your thing. Um, you're a science writer, present what you know from the research. And I did that. And the students were very polite and very receptive. And then I did a um, book signing afterwards. And a student came up to me and said, she thanked me really in a really um, heartfelt way. And she said, uh, you know, we don't really have scientists come here to talk to us, or we don't have people come here to talk, talk, talk to us about science. You know what, Kelly, let me just say the whole thing again. Um, So after I gave the talk, we did a book signing and a student came up to me and she said in a really heartfelt way, you know, we don't really have people come here to talk to us about science. And I found your talk really interesting and I I really appreciate that you came. And so I was so grateful and to her for telling me that. And so um, glad that I had come to, to this place that didn't feel necessarily like a comfortable place for me to be. But in the end, I felt like I'd, I'd done the right thing by going there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially living in the world we live in now, right. Where, where no one, no one wants to speak across difference and mm-hmm. uh, we, we block and we, you know, and everyone does it and everyone points the finger at the other way. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I find in my experience with, when I sit with most people, there's stuff that they can contribute and that they mm-hmm. can take from me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be a battle and it's just one that we got to, got to do. Uh, mm-hmm. The book is called the extended mind, the power of thinking outside the brain Annie Murphy-Paul, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kelly. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Getting the Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox The Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.